Thanks for tuning in to the podcast of The Porch Church. We hope today's message blesses you and encourages you in your spiritual journey. If you have questions, visit us on the web, www.theporchchurch.tv. My favorite thing about Christmas is opening presents, and if and if I get the present I really wanted, um, I make a big grin on my face, and every time my... Um, my I, I open it, and my mom like gets us on camera. We go, thank you, Santa. What I want for Christmas is a mountain bike. I wanted a tablet and an LOL doll. I want a Nintendo Switch and a game called Steep for my Xbox. I want all the things to make a Hot Wheels city, and then also I just really, really the thing I mostly want is um, the car wash for the cars. All I want for Christmas is a new Kindle charger, because my Kindle, because my other Kindle charger does not work. That's it. That's Very sad. Yes, pretty much. LOL dolls too. <laughs> How do you respond to the perfect present, right? Anybody? Like it shows that the person paid attention, that they listened, that they care about you, right? That they're invested in knowing who you are. Gift. Sometimes when we get uh, on the Big Bang Theory, maybe you know this show, maybe you don't. Let me set up this clip, though. Sheldon uh, doesn't quite understand, like, social, emotional type of things, right? He's a little inept. And so when he gets the perfect present, he, he kind of implodes, and uh, it's kind of hilarious to watch. So I thought we'd take a look at that together. Check out the screen. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. How's your leg? Very good. Thanks for asking. Come on in. <laughs> Oh, good, Penny. You're here to exchange gifts. <laughs> You'll be pleased to know I'm prepared for whatever you have to offer. Okay, here. <laughs> I should note, I'm having some digestive distress. <laughs> so if I excuse myself abruptly, don't be alarmed. Oh, a napkin. Turn it over. <laughs> to Sheldon, live long and prosper, Leonard Nimoy. He came into the restaurant, sorry the napkin's dirty, he wiped his mouth with it. <laughs> possess the DNA of Leonard Nimoy? <laughs> Sheldon, what did you do? I know. <laughs> it's not enough, is it? Here.
perfect presence, right? So Sheldon receives the perfect gift, and uh, he doesn't know how to respond. Sometimes when we get the perfect gift, we don't quite know how to reciprocate it. We don't know how to respond. For Sheldon, he, he doesn't know what the social protocol is. That's why he brings out every single gift that he can possibly muster up, because he can't repay the gift that Penny gave him. We're talking about Christmas all December, right? Because it's church, and what else could we possibly do? Last week, we talked about how Christmas is really wrapped up in what we get, right? What we receive. That's the sharing of presents. It's what Christmas is all about as we look kind of across our culture. And we really said that that's not too far off base, right? Actually, Jesus comes and God gives us the greatest gift ever. Remember, we looked at Mary's song and how she recognizes these elements that Jesus brings us, that we get peace with God and that we get peace with each other, that we can recognize in the gift of Jesus, his mercy, his power, and his provision, and that the fulfillment of God's promise and all of that are things that we can be grateful for. We said that at its heart, Christmas is really about getting, and that we should be the loudest champions of the great gift that we receive in Jesus through Christmas. Paul says it a different way in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 15. As he reflects on the goodness of God, he simply says, thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. Words can't contain it, he says, this grace, this gift of life eternal that we receive in Jesus. So the question for us then is, so how do we repay, how do we reciprocate the most indescribable, perfect gift that's ever been given? How could we ever possibly say thank you to God for such an extravagant gift, right? Like there's no gift card that we can just like give to Jesus to like cover over things, right? It's too much, it's too big we couldn't possibly find the right way to say thank you. But if you know the Christmas story, if you're familiar with kind of this season, you know that giving gifts has been a part of Christmas really since the beginning. Remember the wise men come and they take a journey and they bring gifts with them to set before Jesus. We sung about this in a couple of songs this morning. And so I thought that we'd take a little bit closer look at that, a little bit closer look at the wise men, maybe who they were, what motivated them, why they brought the gifts that they brought, and see if we can learn something about ourselves within that process. So we're going to open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 2, if you brought them. Matthew chapter 2. We'll be starting right away uh, at verse 1. If you didn't bring a Bible and you'd like to follow along, our scriptures will be up on the screen, but you can also just slip your hand up. Our ushers are walking around with Bibles. They'd love to give you a Bible. You can borrow it for the service or just keep it. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, we just want you to have God's Word in your life. And I kid you not, the scripture is on page 456. So if you don't believe me, you'll have to slip your hand up. Um, But uh, Christmas starts on page four, five, six. So here we go. Matthew chapter two. Let's look at uh, these wise men and the gifts that they bring, starting in verse one. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem, and they asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Familiar passage, familiar story. I bet you've heard that before, at least in some phraseology in some way. Let's pull out some pieces of that. Let's see what this tells us about the story of that first Christmas and for our lives as well. The first thing that we might notice is that it's after Jesus was born. Through some context, we learn that this might have been as late as two years after Jesus' birth. So your wonderful nativity at home, right, with the shepherds and the sheep and the three wise men, probably not biblically accurate. Sorry, right? Like just throw 
of the wise men out. They weren't there probably when Jesus was a baby. As a matter of fact, it's probably happened that the signs that they were observing led them to pursue a journey that took the course again of over two years. Not to say that they weren't an important part of the story, just means that the birthday gifts that they brought were a little belated, right? Like two years too short. So we see that they came after Jesus' birth. What else? It says magi from the east. Magi is a very familiar word, is it not? I'm sure you've used that multiple times in your uh, workplace conversations this week. What's magi mean anyway? Well, magi is a Chaldean or Babylonian word. It basically means a whole lot of misunderstood concepts. They were essentially wise men. That's a great translation, but they were also could lump into that category scientists and astronomers astronomers and astrologers and soothsayers and prophets, all kinds of categories that you and I would not fit together at all in our 21st century look back into this scripture. Right? So all that to say that they were, they were probably sages. They were wise people who understood the connection between multiple branches that in their world were very, very connected, right? Reading signs and wonders and looking up at the stars while at the same time connecting that with a very, very spiritual reality. I think that if we could take one thing away from what magi means, it's that they were both scientific and spiritual. They were a mix between both. They were spiritual because in one sense they came to worship the king of the Jews, right? They came looking for this baby to be born, to fulfill prophecy. We also read later on in the passage that they had a dream and that dream directed their course. So they were certainly spiritual in some level, but they were also scientific because they're looking up at the stars. They're charting courses. They're looking at things that were advanced that people didn't quite understand that day. They knew enough that stars told them things and to follow them. And so they were both spiritual and scientific. An odd mix perhaps for us as we look back over the course of the first century, but for them that was just the world that they lived in. Let's keep reading through our story. Jump down with me to verse 9. After they had heard the king, this is King Herod who gave them some directions about where to perhaps find this child, they went on their way and the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Now, I don't know how much attention you guys pay to stars. Um, stars don't stop. Like, especially moving stars, right? Like, things that have been moving and charting throughout the heavens, like whether it's a meteor, whether it's a comet, whether it's a sight, stars just don't start and stop. Are you, are you with me on that? Nobody's disputing the scientific claim, Right? right? You guys need to look at the stars more. Get out of Denver, go camping for a weekend, look at the stars, right? Okay, they, we move, right? The earth turns. We know this and understand this today, but back then they didn't quite understand how all that worked, right? For another 1,400 years, they still thought the earth was the center of the universe, let alone the solar system. And so there's a gap in some knowledge here that perhaps we can fill in. And my point here is not to say that it wasn't miraculous, that God wasn't somehow involved. It's just merely to illustrate that there are some things that we can actually understand about perhaps what the wise men saw, perhaps what occurred in and around that first Christmas, and maybe get some insight from it. See, extensive research has been done into researching the stars. We can recreate the night sky at any date in history now using software and algorithms and all kinds of things, again, because we understand the predictable movement. And so the, the ancients would have had this way of understanding the world through what happened in the stars, right? Remember, we're talking about the time when the 
the Zodiac calendar, right, was first created. They understood their relationship to the gods, to the heavens, in relationship to what was going on in the heavens, in the stars above them. And so consequently, they would be looking for signs and wonders for things that would hint at things that were happening on earth that, again, were both scientific and spiritual because for them, those worlds weren't separate. They were one in the same. And so there's compelling pieces of evidence that what actually happened would have been a conjunction of super planets in a constellation that basically would have communicated that a king of kings was coming and that he was going to be of significance to the Jewish people. And these people who watch stars for a living, right, this was their job, they would have seen these signs and they would have followed through with it. And one of the things that might have happened is something called retrograde motion. Now I have to warn you, it's going to get nerdy. So if you need a five-minute nap, this is your opportunity. I won't be offended. I'm excited about this. Doesn't mean that you have to be. So retrograde motion is this opportunity where planets appear to move in a different fashion. Rather than just streaking across the sky like we're used to seeing, retrograde motion happens when the orbits of our planets and our observation of planets create the pattern that's kind of up there on the screen. It almost creates an S-curve. It appears perhaps to even encircle a place that could perhaps be beneath it. So transmit yourself from this 21st century that we live in, rewind and be someone who studies astronomical phenomenon for a living, who believes that the things that happen in the skies and in the stars have a direct impact on your life. Perhaps there were constellations that depicted different importances and things, and so what we can retrace and recreate is that there were times where planets who represented Jupiter, which was the king of all planets, it was named after the Greek god in the Parthenon, Zeus, Jupiter, same guy, and also the planet Venus appeared in constellations that were particularly important to the Jews, and you put that combined with this retrograde motion, it's almost as if there could have been a point in time where a group of people were pursuing pursuing an astronomical sign about a great king who was to be born, the king of the Jews, and as they followed what they believed to be a star, because they had no quite understanding of what the planets were, it then stopped and encircled a place that literally happened on the map, which is pretty fascinating to me, I think. Now, again, I'm not trying to take away from the miracle. God can do whatever he wants, right? He can have uh, retrograde motion. He can have a comet. He can have stars. He can have an angel with a flashlight, like just doing Morse code, right? God can do whatever he wants to do. But I think it's fascinating that even 2,000 years later, with our scientific understanding, we can rewind the clock and go, you know, with our understanding of the ancient world and how that might have looked, a wise person, a magi, a sage, may have interpreted these signs to mean something greater and larger and bigger than it does to us simply today. I think that's fascinating. I think that's important. I think that shows a little bit about who these people were. Now, again, despite which Netflix documentary we watch, nobody knows for certain dates, times, symbols, all of those types of things. But I think that these create a compelling case for recognizing where the Bible, where Scripture coincides with the reality that exists in the world as we know it. And we have to admit that whatever they saw, whatever they experienced in the heavens was compelling enough for them to leave on an arguably two-year journey and to bring amounts of incredible wealth and value to lay before a child who was just born. 
They planned accordingly for this visit. Whatever they interpreted, whatever they saw, it communicated to them that this was a king of kings, someone to be worshipped, someone to be followed after, someone to be pursued. Let's pick up our story in verse 11. On coming to the house, this is Jesus' house, they saw the child with, with his mother, Mary. They bowed down and they worshipped him and they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Again, they came prepared for this journey. Whatever was happening in the stars, whatever was important to them, whatever they perceived to be truth and reality, both in the scientific and spiritual world, they came with the intention to bring gifts fit for a king of kings that was of significant promise to the Jews. A couple interesting notes about these gifts, right? Um, nowhere do we hear that there are three wise men. Right? It doesn't exist in the scriptures. We hear about three gifts, and what's interesting about that is that there could have been a whole caravan of wise men. There probably wasn't just one because the Greek is plural, but nonetheless, we don't quite know about the people who brought these gifts. What Matthew feels fit to tell us, to clue us into, is not the people who brought the gift, but the gifts themselves. Because just as with the Magi, the gifts have both an earthly component and a spiritual component as well. See, these these were gifts fit for a king, an earthly king. You would present these to a king at times when the kings were born as well, right? Gold, obviously, because it's, it's gold, right? It's valuable. This would communicate worth uh, to anybody who was perceived to be of humanly uh, righteous origins, of a king of the earth. By the same token, they would bring frankincense. Frankincense would have been a perfume. It would have been a sweet-smelling aroma, and so they would have brought it as a perfume for a royalty, for a newborn king. Also myrrh. Myrrh would have been brought as an anointing oil, kind of a divine rite that would have been poured over them. It would have been something that was very, very appropriate to bring to a king. But as we already said, these magi not only were shrewd in the ways of the earth and the things that kings would expect, but there's also been a well-documented spiritual component to these gifts. See, gold was again to signify his earthly reign as king, the earthly rule that Christ would have. By the same token, the, the frankincense is a incense, right? Incense is what you burn before a deity. And so they recognized his spiritual divinity within these gifts that they brought. Myrrh, of course, perhaps you've heard this story, is also an embalming fluid. It's used at the time of death. And so in these gifts that they bring, not only is there the kind of horizontal level, this would have been appropriate for an earthly king, but there is a deeply spiritual level that is conveyed in these gifts that the the wise men bring, right? Even with all of this fanfare, even with all of their planning, even after a two-year journey, while those gifts are great and fit for a king, in light of the story of who Jesus is and what he gives to us that we reviewed last week, they still fall short. The symbolism and the meaning are both spot on, but what do you give to a God who gives everything to us. doesn't feel like they quite meet up with the gift, perhaps, that is presented in Jesus. So let's go at this story a different angle. How many of you guys have somebody in your family who's difficult to buy gifts for? 
Anybody have somebody in their family that's difficult? If your hand's not up, your partner's probably is. Um, that's just kind of how this works, right? In my family, I'm the one that's difficult to buy gifts for, right? I kind of am um, a little bit controlling, right? I kind of know what I like and what I don't like before I buy anything. I, I thoroughly research it so I know which model and which brand and what has the best reviews and what's going to serve my needs the best. And, and I'm kind of low maintenance, which means when there's something I want, I, I, I usually just buy it, right? Because I, I know what I want. I don't want to trust anybody else to mess up that purchase. So, um, so I just kind of take care of it, which is great for me and incredibly difficult for Melissa, right? She always tries to get me perhaps what, I, what she thinks I need or what perhaps I've hinted at. Um, and I learned very, very early on that thank you, but I really wanted a different model is not the thing to say on Christmas morning. Um, that's how you wind up with zero presents under the tree, right? Is to say, ooh, that's nice, but what I really wanted was uh, don't do that. If you're newly married, that's some free advice to you. But no matter how hard the people in, in our lives try to buy presents for, right, there are difficult people to buy for. There are people who have everything, who don't need everything. And so I think that part of this comes into a little bit of this eternal relationship with Jesus, who gives the greatest gift ever. And perhaps like Sheldon on the screen, we want to reciprocate. We want to give back something. The wise men demonstrate that, that even if you brought the perfect gift, it would, it would still fall short. It would still not quite measure up. And the, and the real reason is that Jesus... Jesus doesn't want stuff from us, right? What do you give? What gift could you bring to the Son of God, the firstborn of all creation, the Savior of the world, right? Um, here's some stuff you made a long time ago. We, we dug it up for you and Merry Christmas, right? Like, Jesus doesn't need those things. It says that he reigns over all of creation. So we often tell ourselves and we tell our kids, kids, you can plug your ears at this part, we say, well, we exchange gifts at Christmas because it's Jesus' birthday and Jesus doesn't need presents, and so we give presents to each other on Jesus' behalf, right? Which is a very great way to explain it within our family units. It's a great place to start the Christmas story at, but I think we can do a little bit better. See, we don't exchange gifts at Christmas, not because Jesus doesn't need anything. I think that when we exchange gifts, we actually achieve something greater. Because when we give, when we give presents, when we give gifts, when we lavish and dote and love on people, when we give, then we act and we function like God. We act and function like this God who is the cosmic divine giver, right? We talked about this last week that John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that he gave his most prized possession. That's why Christmas is fundamentally about receiving because God is such a giver in everything that he gives us, in life, in Jesus, in everything that we have, we receive from God. But I think it's even deeper than that. See, God does more than just give things to us. He actually creates and inspires and invites us into the same space that he occupies. He's not content to just give us good things. He wants to teach us to be givers just as he is a giver, right? Just like any good father doesn't simply want to give good gifts, he wants to inspire generosity and love and care in his family and in his children. This is what we hope to create with sharing Christmas presents. I, I heard a story this week, and I didn't have a chance to verify it, right? It's just one of those Facebook things, but it was so inspiring to me that, that I thought I'd share it, and we can just all hope and pray that it's true, and if not, maybe we can make it true for us. But it was the story about a, about a dad, right, who was the difficult person to shop for. I don't know why dads are always the difficult person to shop for, but apparently that's just universal, right? 
So it's a dad who was difficult to shop for. Right? He says, I don't, I don't want anything for Christmas. Right? Like, I don't really need anything. I've kind of got everything that I want to do. I'm, I'm content to, to buy gifts for my family, to love and to dote on them. But, but there's really nothing that I want for Christmas. I don't need anything. And after a couple of years of, of this going on, his wife began to get creative in how she would give to him. And so one Christmas, she told the story that they were at a wrestling match with their two children. And in this wrestling match, there was the school that they went to, which was a, a well-provided-for school. They had the equipment, the gear. The gym was fully stocked. They were a good school. And they were competing against a school who didn't have the gear, who didn't have the resources, who didn't have the same opportunities. And as the husband watched as his school trounced the school that didn't have the gear. He said, man, you know, they have some really good kids on their team. There's some real potential there. What they really need is somebody who believes in them, who can support them. What they really need is, is just some gear to be able to train and to do better because losses like these will eventually kill their spirit and they'll stop pursuing this. And he says, it really breaks my heart that, that they don't have some of the things that could really make a difference for them. So the wife, after doing this for years, kind of tuned in and she went, I have an idea. So she went out and she made an anonymous donation, right? She bought the wrestling gear. She bought the things that the school would need. She sent it to the school anonymously and she wrote a note about what she'd done and why she did it. And she included a little bit of the receipt and she put it in an envelope on the Christmas tree. So Christmas Day rolls around, right? They're opening all of the presents. They have all of this opportunity then to open up the presents. And then at the very, very end, the spouse goes, excuse me, dear, you have one more present to open. It's this envelope on the tree. And so she watches as her husband opens the envelope, right? Tears well up in his eyes. And she says, it's the happiest I've ever seen him at Christmas. It's the best gift that I've ever gotten him. And so she repeated this pattern over the next couple of years, once with a youth hockey team another time with a basketball team, and on and on it went. And each year at Christmas, there would be this envelope that was tucked in the tree. She described kind of the, the morning of Christmas and how in the, in the frenzy of opening presents and giving gifts, all of a sudden when it was over, there would be this, this holy silence, right? As the family turned their attention to the envelope to hear the story and to see dad's reaction to what giving a gift outside of themselves truly looked like. Of course, no story worth sharing necessarily has a happy ending. And so the wife was composing this the year after her husband had passed away due to cancer. She was reflecting on the stress of the season and how the tree barely got up that year, but how on that Christmas when things were so far out of the normal, there was something that was very, very normal. Only instead of there being one envelope on the tree, there were three See, the dad had now inspired giving within his family, not only his spouse to him, but in his children as well. And so it became this Christmas tradition, not only to give and exchange gifts, but to find those spaces and opportunities to give to those who might not receive in the normal capacity. See, givers, people who like giving, don't just, aren't just content to be givers in and of themselves. We want to inspire giving in the people around us, whether they be spouses or friends or coworkers or children. And I think that God, like a good father, isn't content to simply lavish and bless us with good gifts. He absolutely loves to do that, but what he wants to see is us as his children get it. 
right? For it to click for us, for us to see the great gift that we've been given and then to be inspired to give in the same capacity in which God gives to us, abundantly and richly and with generosity. This is why our faith is based on giving, on pouring ourselves out for the sake of others. It's why the scripture records that Jesus teaches that it's better for us to give than to simply receive. It's also why you already know that the main point about Christmas is not about what we get, but it's also about what we give, right? Christmas is for giving. It's for giving presents. It's for giving time and attention and affection. It's for blessing people outside of the normal spheres. But intuitively, we all know that Christmas is not just about what we get. It's about what we give, It's why within our families we spend so much time at Christmas having conversations with our children about not only what they receive at Christmas, but are they grateful for it and how do they reciprocate that? How do we teach them to be givers as they grow up and not just recipients in this process. Christmas is for giving. Again, nothing revolutionary, nothing that you didn't know. You already believe this. You already teach this. So let me just challenge you to take it to the next level. What do you need to give this Christmas? What piece of yourself, what, what part of this whole Christmas experience do you need to take the gift that you've received in Jesus and then to not only give to others, but to encourage giving and generosity among them as well? Perhaps it's with your family. Sure, you give them presents under the tree, but how do you measure your giving where there is no dollar sign attached? How generous are you with your time, with your affection, with your love, with one-on-one time, right? Nothing, nothing gets in the way of that, of having multiple children, like having to find that one-on-one time to spend with each child. How do you give to your family in the areas that they most need to receive? And how, you, how do you foster them to be givers within themselves? How about your friends and close, significant relationships, right? We all do the, the white elephant gift exchanges, right, where we can't buy everybody presents, so let's buy one $5 present, and we'll trade, we'll do the game, and that's how we'll save money. That's great. How do you give from them for something that actually counts, that actually matters? How can you find them in a space where you could bless them and give generously to them? Again, we're talking more than money. We're talking time, attention, affection. It, it could be that what your friends most need is an invitation to attend a Christmas service where they can hear about Jesus and how Christmas isn't just about the gifts that we exchange, but that it's about a bigger piece of this season. Maybe you could give the gift of life this Christmas into some people who are close to you. Maybe God's blessed you richly this year in your sense of time and your sense of the ability to give back. And you just find yourself in a season of going, how do I give out of the abundance that I've received? There are some volunteer opportunities in your bulletin that you can be a part of to find ways to serve. Maybe for you, it's that you've been blessed financially and you need to find ways to give back. Let me highlight a couple areas. We've got the As One Scholars Program, 30 bucks a month, and you can equip a child in Uganda to go to school. We've provided uh, over 191 Bibles, I think, at this point. More, I know, are coming in out of our goal of 120, uh, which is awesome. Thank you so much. Maybe you're going, ah, I didn't get to that in time. Let me draw your attention to a Christmas tree down in our children's hallway where our school teachers have written gifts that they would like for their classroom. You can take one of those off, buy the present, and wrap it and put it under the tree. And maybe you can put an envelope on your tree about to tell your family how the reason 
reason that they didn't have the dollhouse under the tree is because you gave it to somebody else who was in need, right? If Christmas really is for giving, how do we transcend that as Christ followers to not just be about the gifts that we exchange, not just trying to break even with the people around us, but how do we give like God gives? Giving of ourselves, our time, our attention, our resources for sure, but most importantly, how do we give the life-giving presence of Jesus that we receive, right? After all, Jesus is the greatest present ever. He's the perfect gift. He's the gift that we all need and desire, and he's the gift that keeps on motivating us to give to others. What do you need to give this Christmas? Where do you need to be like God, and where do you have that time, space, and opportunity to do so? I want to invite you, before we sing one last song, to bow your heads with me and maybe just to reflect on that question a little bit. I don't know what God highlighted for you in this service. I don't know what the Holy Spirit might be whispering to your heart, but I just want to encourage you to tune out my voice and to listen in to that still, small voice that speaks to your heart. What are the places and opportunities that God has given you to to give and to bless others? Where have you received abundantly, and where is God pointing at to be able to say you could give abundantly there as well? We are blessed to be a blessing, yes to our families, yes to our friends, but also to the world. What have you been given? What have you received that you could give? It may be as simple as presence other than under the tree. It may be quality time or affection. It may be that you've been blessed financially and you need to pour out that blessing to others. But whatever it is, Christmas is about giving. And I hope that you have time, space, and opportunity to reflect on all that you've received in Jesus and to find ways to give life-giving gifts this Christmas. Heavenly Father, God, would you touch those areas of our hearts where you're speaking to right now? Would you empower and equip us to be not just recipients of this great gift of Jesus, but givers as well? And not just in one area, God, but in every area that we would be your people, that we would bless the world through the blessings that you've given us. God, would you equip us to be givers just as you gave? Heavenly Father, we trust you in this. We ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit that fills and lives in the hearts of all believers. And all God's kids agreed together and said, Guide us to thy Guide us to thy God is the perfect life. We three kings of all in all, bearing gifts we travel so far, field and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder star. Star of wonder, star of night Star with royal beauty bright Westward leading, still proceeding Guide us to thy 
Guide us to thy Guide us to thy Perfect 